Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Dan Wilburn, and welcome to Lakeland again. Uh, thank you for being here. We are moving into a series for the next um, four weeks or so, really uh, talking about um, the discovery of God and going over some really basic fundamentals about what does it look like uh, to follow Christ and begin a spiritual journey. And so, if you brought a Bible, and I understand that, you know, like if you're brand new to the faith, you probably aren't carrying around a Bible with you, but um, if you brought a Bible or if you opened up the internet or on your smartphone or something like that, you would want to turn in the New Testament to a letter that's called Colossians by the Apostle Paul, and it's Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. It'll be on the screen as well, and, but we'll come back to it a couple of times, so that's why you may want to have it handy and accessible Uh, to you. And here's what it says, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in 12. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with gratitude in your hearts, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks to God, the Father, through him. That's how Paul talks about worship. And he uses a couple of metaphors, clothing in particular in here. Like we're going to put on this thing called Christianity. A few years ago, a novelist who since uh, died uh, early in life, by the way, a, a novelist, David Foster Wallace, gave a commencement speech in Ohio at Kenyon College. And for whatever reason, it's become a rather famous uh, commencement speech, which is kind of weird for commencement speeches anyway. But nonetheless, this one's gotten kind of famous, very popular these days. And here's part of what he had to say in this commencement speech. And by the way, he's not really Christian. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Not a Christian or a person of faith, Wallace goes on to say that people may worship Jesus Christ. They may worship Allah. They may worship Yahweh. They may worship, uh, worship uh, Wiccan mother goddess. They may worship the four noble truths. On and on and on. They may worship a lot of things. They may even just worship ethical principles like Confucianism. But whatever you worship, Wallace says, it will eat you alive. You can worship money and things, and then you will never have enough, he says. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, 
and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you, he says. Wallace says, worship power and you will feel weak and afraid all the time. And you will need even more power to keep the fear at bay. Worship intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud and always on the verge of being found out. I believe David Foster Wallace is on to something here. Everybody worships something. Furthermore, we don't really think our way into worshiping. We don't really think our way into it. Everyone's worshiping something. We don't think our way into worship. Worship is an unconscious reflection of what we unknowingly already believe is worth worshiping. We worship without knowing or deciding what to worship is what he's getting at. For Christians then, worship is a response to God's grace and love. It's something we feel. We say we believe in Jesus and we believe in Christianity, but not until it's experienced does a person really begin to worship and understand it. We believe before we think. We worship God as a response to grace and love. And if we swim in the water of God's grace, then we worship God. If we swim in the waters of, say, performance and achievement, then we worship achievement and money and success and and the other measurements of what achievement and performance looks like. Maybe that was put in your mind by your parents or school. But we all worship without thinking about what we worship. And it doesn't have to be God. Back to Colossians. Paul writes a letter to these new Christians at the city called Colossae. And he tells them to put on Christ. Put on the life of Jesus Christ. Like we're putting on clothing. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. Forgive complaints as Jesus forgives us. Above all, dress yourselves in love, which binds everything harmoniously together. Immerse yourselves in the word of Christ. Teach and talk to each other about the things of God. Walk in a world that's bathed in the teachings and in the thought of Jesus. Let that be the water that you swim in. And you will eventually begin to worship that without even deciding to worship it. Be grateful. Be thankful. Sing spiritual songs. In your car, listen to Christian worship worship music. In your home. Live this out. Who here hasn't left a Sunday and Monday morning when you're in the shower, you're singing some song to yourself that you heard here? You know where it came from. Where does it come? You didn't think like, hey, I know, I need to sing a song from church. What happens? And why is it in the shower that we all sing? I don't get it. But nonetheless, something bubbles up. That's what you are already worshiping. That's the way it works. Immerse yourselves in Jesus, and you'll swim in love. Immerse yourself in something else, and you'll swim in that. That's the water that we swim in. That's the clothing that we put on. Again, we cannot think our way into worship. We have to put on Jesus. We have to swim in the water of heaven on earth. 
And then we worship God. What water are you swimming in? What clothing are you wearing? What does your clothing, so to speak, say about what you worship? What have we put on, everyone? Now, I'm not asking you to check out your brain, you know, like just to discount thinking. That's not my point. Rather, it is to recognize something that we actually aren't thinking about, the water that we're swimming in. So first, think about this. So uh, before you ever even prove that there's a God or that Jesus rose from the dead on Easter or whatever, or that if miracles are legit or not, think about what you're swimming in. As a matter of fact, my studies have been all about trying to recognize what water we're swimming in as a culture and how we can make Christians out of that. How does that crash together? So if you want to understand what water we swim in, then look no further than the local shopping mall. Now, before I get off here, I'm not against shopping malls. I'll say that again and when I'm done. Let us think of the shopping mall as a temple. You can arrive at the mall and then you're squeezed through a narrow entry, very boring usually. No signs there. They don't want you to stop. You're squeezed through a small entryway, which immediately explodes into a huge atrium with skylights and plants and fountains and this directionless music that's going on. The space is very vertical. It's very transcendent. It's meant to go upward. The last thing the shopping mall designers want you to do is look out on that measly ocean of automobiles that's surrounded. Boring. Instead, they want it to be in a worship experience and to move upward up into the light, up into the skylights. It's very upward. And around that, as you move in, into the temple, are the banners and the symbols and the icons of consumerism. Come here. Go there. Don't you want to be this? Don't you want to look like that? Look at this. Be that. And you're awash in it. And we're familiar with it. The space is not linear. You don't walk down a hallway like you would at grade school or junior high. It's not on a grid. It's meant to curve and circle and have octagonals. You're meant to get lost, so you really kind of can't leave. It's meant literally to get you wandering. And it winds and it winds, and you go and you have to hunt to find an escalator that will take you to a place that is not immediately able to go back down. You have to go through all the other little chapels and booths in order to find your way. The music comes from no particular place. The pretzels and the cinnamon rolls are the temple's incense wafting through the air, and the faithful and seeker alike come hither, deeper and further in to the worship experience. Now we come to the individual altars. These complete with alluring eyes and icons of saints draped in the latest fashions. And the faithful come to order to figure out how to become an imitator of those that they idealize. Just like an icon. But instead of it being a 2D icon, it's three-dimensional. And the mannequins, you can actually walk all the way around them. And find out who you should be imitating. What you should look like. And what you should purchase. They challenge your current lifestyle and what you're doing now and create a tension and a dissatisfaction that says, aren't you living less? 
just less than what you could be, be this. This is the ideal. This is who you should be. Each shop is like a chapel where an acolyte, we call him a store associate, but where the acolyte greets us and asks if they can assist with us in making our offering. But this worship is not just about giving. It's also about receiving because it's more blessed to receive. And the acolyte helps us pick out just the perfect newly minted relic that we can take home and put on our wall or our shelf or our counter or wear or hang so we can gaze at it and think, that's who I am. We take a bit of St. Nike or Victoria of Secret with us every time we go. Now, did somebody sit down in a classroom and teach us this religion of the shopping mall? Did you learn this with your brain? Now, maybe your parents took you there early on. And so you began to swim in that water. You began to realize this is who we are. You began, before you even knew it, to fall in love with an ideal of what you should be worshiping as an American. We fall in love with the mall mall because it's the water that we swim in. When my daughter was four and we were sitting together on the sofa watching the Chiefs game on a Sunday afternoon, and up comes that normal sequence of commercials, perfectly timed, and my little girl, four years old, says, Daddy, I like watching commercials because they tell me what I want. I had unwittingly taught my little girl what to love during a Chiefs game. And what she picked up with was, not football, the commercials. Into this water within which we swim comes Jesus. And Jesus is an alternative water, an alternative set of clothing, a different narrative, a different story. Not altogether opposed to the shopping mall, or to American consumerism or whatever, but it is of a different water. Jesus is this competing idea of what you should be putting on and wearing in life. Jesus asks us to put on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and to forgive when wrong, to live in harmony, to be grateful, to be thankful, to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts because we are not alone. We are a body called the body of Christ, the church. And that's a very challenging thing to radical American individualism that says you are an island and you are self-sufficient. You are not a herd. You're a private entrepreneur. So if we cannot think our way into loving and kindness and compassion and humility and so forth, what water must we swim in in order to become compassionate people? Worship. Worship is the key. Because worship is felt. You feel it. Worship not only uses the head, but it is an emotion. It's a surrounding. It's like the shopping mall. It's something you immerse yourself in. And it teaches you, so to speak, through your skin, the way water is, the way clothing is. Worship. Back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God. Now, when Christians standardly hear this verse, let the word of Christ, we think the Bible, and that's certainly true. But word in the New Testament really means Christ's presence, even more so than what he said. It's his entire thought. Jesus is called the thought of God, the logos, the word of God. It's as though he is present in you. It's so much more surrounding and immersive. It's not just cognitive thinking, which is certainly true, of course. Sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, worship. Surround yourself with others who wear the clothing of Jesus. Let the presence and the life of Jesus dwell in you richly. Wash your world with scriptures. Whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of Jesus. And give thanks to God, the Father, through him. You feel the immersiveness here that what Paul's talking about? This is the water we should be swimming in. You bathe yourself, you put on this, and you become that. If your home is filled with Jesus, then that's what you'll wear. If our homes are filled with cursing and judgment and cynicism and conversation about who's good and who's bad and who you like and who you don't like and judgment, then that's what we put on. If we watch crash crass television shows full of beautiful bodies but are yet somehow needy and deceitful and mean-spirited and then buffoons for men who are only interested in self and sex and pleasure and lie and cheat to get whatever they want or to make life easier and drink duff beer all day long, then that's what you become. That's the water we swim in. It educates us without thinking. But if our lives are filled with helping others and giving away gifts, money, possessions, time, then our lives will be shaped by a world of generosity. We'll be shaped by a world that says, I am not alone. I belong to the world. I have to care for the world and other people. If I'm going to be Jesus, I have to take up my cross and follow him. This is not a burden. This is a joy. This is who I want to be. It's an alternative story, an alternative water to swim in. And it's challenging and it's difficult to put on. That's why you have to surround yourself with other Christians and with worship. If our lives are filled with helping others, we become like Jesus. But if our social media is full of angry, hit-and-run slogans and quips and judgments and sarcasm, then don't be surprised when your heart turns gray and you shrivel up into some sort of moral elitism thinking that you're better than all those other people who don't know better or some sort of, you know, protective entitlement driven by fear. Worship comes from the old English word like Wednesday or something like that, you know, an old English word that says um, worth-ship. What is worthy? That's where it comes from. Whatever we think is worthy, that's what we worship. Since worship always ascribes worth, then worship is always costly. There is no such thing as free worship or even cheap worship. 
Genuine worship is always expensive. Whether you're going to the mall or whether you're coming to church or doing charity or anything else like that. Since worship always ascribes worth, then it's always costly. Worship is costly. There's no such thing as cheap, free worship. In the Old Testament, King Solomon built the very first temple in Jerusalem, somewhere around 960 B.C. But hardly does anyone recognize the fact that his father, King David, spent decades stockpiling all the wood and material and precious metals and jewels for Solomon to build that temple. Cost David lots of money. Cost King Solomon lots of money, his son. It is said that from 30 miles away, you could see King Solomon's temple. The dome was leafed in gold. Before you even knew there was a city, you could see something shining. And in an ancient world, that was a big deal. Then, in medieval Europe, they built massive cathedrals, like Notre Dame, or in England, Westminster. And you know, nowadays, we tend to kind of have a critical eye towards that. And if you're inside the church, you begin to realize that they were, you know, uh, selling things to make money to build this sort of thing. And we get kind of critical of these big cathedrals over in Europe, thinking that, wow, what a wasteful extravagance. You know, they could have done something to help the poor or something like that. But at the time, the peasants and the poor and the rich alike all joined together to do something larger than themselves. It was not an extravagant waste to them. It was something they were building. And not to get, um, you know, not be wrong here or anything like that, but... We also, um, I always wondered why, like, uh, this is going to sound a little awkward, but why pastors in the inner city always, like, drove the gold-trimmed Cadillac with the curb feelers and all that. Like, dude, help the poor. And then I came to find out after I worked in the inner city for so long, that it's like, you know what? In a poor culture, when there's an icon of somebody succeeding and doing well, the whole community says we're doing well. This is part of the reason why we're doing the Eastland House and re- rebuilding it down on Linwood Boulevard because it's a boulevard home, a beautiful brick three-story home that we're going to finish up. Because if the boulevard looks good, if Linwood Boulevard looks good, then the whole neighborhood begins to say, like, we're doing okay. And when medieval Europe built the cathedrals and people were being plagued by the plague, Everyone thought, we can survive. We can make it. Look at Notre Dame. So we can critique it these days, but I bet you if you ask those same people, say like, oh yeah? Well, 500 years from now, what are they going to say you've been worshiping? Because you guys now got to buy tickets to go into the thing that we built. And it's still there. And it's beautiful. Still. And transcendent. But 500 years from now, what will historians and anthropologists say that we built? A shopping mall. Worship costs, everyone, and it brings this incredible joy. You can always tell authentic worship because it brings a joy. Something deep, some water running very deep inside the soul. We can't separate the joy of giving from the worship of God. Whether it's charity or time or our talents or whatever it is. The joy of worship is the only reason why we could ever make sense for having children. 
You guys who haven't had kids yet, but you just got married and you're sitting around thinking like, should we have kids? You know what's going on. Your rational, smart thinking brain is saying like, this don't make no sense. Having children. If you ask your insurance agent or your financial counselor, does it make good sense for me to have children? They'll say, no. No way. Your insurance policies go up. You'll be poor. Why do we have children? Only one reason. Joy. Just pure joy. Just joy. And that's what we worship. That home with those kids and thinking about what it'll be someday and them having children someday and coming home and making you slave over a stove and feed them all. That kind of joy. It doesn't make any sense financially. It makes total sense when it comes to worship. This day, we begin our 2020 financial challenges. During the Lord's table, we'll drop our first gifts in this bowl up here. You, you put it in the envelope there that Chris talked about, and we drop it in. Each gift is an act of worship. Each gift must bring joy to the giver. Otherwise, it's not worship. Lakeland doesn't want to build a church empire. We're not really out to build a cathedral or a shopping mall. We're not out to make a name for ourselves. We don't need to be famous. But we do need to swim in the beauty of worship. We do need to be a body of Christ that is a fragrant offering up to heaven. That does something with our lives and with our church and what we've gathered together to do to benefit others. That's the cost, everyone is that everything we do financially and with our time and talents and treasures benefits somebody else because worship is always costly. And that's why we do this for the next three years. This will tell you what water you want to swim in. This is going to bring you the joy over the next three years of every time you do something, and you'll make that decision each time saying like, is this really worth it? Joy will be the only answer as well as how it benefits other people. That's why we're going to do this sort of thing. When we look around us, we should see compassion and kindness and love and patience, and the kingdom of heaven will be in our midst during that time. That's how it works. So on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And after he'd given thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body that's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And just as an aside, when he says in remembrance of me, we're not talking about a wake for a dead guy. We're talking about a remembrance that says, be like me. Live with me. Wash yourself in me. Swim in the water. Put on Christ. That sort of remembrance not about a guy who died 2,000 years ago and then was said to raise again. It's about Jesus now, living in that remembrance. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the life we're supposed to be living. Would you stand with me, please, as we pray the way Jesus taught us to pray? Together. Join me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. And therefore, everyone, we proclaim this mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and drink. Glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.